Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Joining me today is Meg Mason, the author of Sorrow and Bliss, the best-selling novel acclaimed as remarkable, extraordinary, and containing a brutal, hilarious, and compassionate truth. For good reason, it's a brilliant and important read. Amongst its many fans are newspapers, including The Times and The New York Times, and the likes of Gillian Anderson, Pandora Sykes, and Sophie Dahl, with the protagonist compared to Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag, an option for the big screen by Oscar-winning US studio New Regency. This is the story of a writer on a journey. And of that journey, perhaps a clue from one of our own favorite novelists, Ralph Ellison, who observed that the end is in the beginning and lies far ahead. Meg, welcome to Changemakers. Pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I've been so looking forward to it. Uh, Well, let's start with the end is in the beginning and lies far ahead, because it's a beautiful quote. It's in in the book, Sorrow, Sorrow and Bliss. But it does seem that so much of your writing contains the flow of a journey. Is that a fair reflection? And if so, what's yours? Well, do you know, it's not an autobiographical novel, but there is such strong autobiographical... I suppose the atmosphere of Sorrow and Bliss is autobiographical in the sense that I don't share chronology with Martha, the protagonist. I don't share her life events or her experiences. But my journey to get to writing that book was to turn 40 right in the middle of a career failure, which was writing a previous book that, you know, was never published because I... (laughs) What would I say? (laughs) I trashed it before it ever got to that stage. And so... So my journey was to kind of recover from that and come back from that and decide at 40 when you think that, you know, when you're 30, you think by then I will have done this, this and this. Mm. And by 40, I'd done none of those things. And so my journey, I guess, was to decide where I was going to go and what I was going to do and how I was going to sort of start again, either by trying again at this one thing, which was to write, you know, fiction and to make that my career, or was I going to give it up and try and find something else to want? And that's Mm. kind of Martha's journey in the book is this one thing that she's wanted you know for her entire life that she's been striving for and she doesn't get it so that's kind of that's the parallel now there are so many parts of this book that I think are just so special and I think as a story I think it's hard to to read it without the kind of laugh out loud moments but there's also the pain and there is a a wonderful moment where one of your characters Peregrine says that nostalgia is the suffering caused by our unappeased yearning to return and it felt to me that that was a very important phrase in understanding a lot about the book and I wonder if you might want to pick that up because of course he talks a a little bit about what nostalgia really means and actually what that might mean to you. Yeah, do you know what's funny when you see after you've written something, you can kind of step back and see what all your concerns were, um, whether they're intentional that you set out to write this or that. But but home is obviously a preoccupation of mine. And I sort of put that down to moving, you know, quite a few times as a child and moving quite a few times as an adult. And not being one of those people who can return to their childhood home in their childhood bedroom. You know, I've got friends whose parents still live in the house they grew up in, which is just such anathema to me. But I do have, you know, and I live away from New Zealand where I grew up and I just, that idea of going back and, you know, Janet Frame is a writer that I love and she had a real preoccupation with home. She is a New Zealand, was a New Zealand novelist who moved to the UK and she wanted to be there and she chose to be there, but she, she would describe herself as this kind of migratory bird. You know, you're always drawn back. And I think that idea of nostalgia, which, you know, is one of those little things that you collect when you're when you're sort of in the posture of writing a novel, you see those phrases and you kind of grab them and think, oh, that's going to go 
and I'm going to crowbar that in somehow. <laughs> whatever um, happens. Yeah, whatever happens today, that Nostos Algos <laughs> is getting in there. But I just found that so heartbreaking that it, he talks about it, it doesn't matter if the home is real or not. You know, mm. I find myself yearning for a home in New Zealand that hasn't existed for 30 years, but I sort of desperately long sometimes to be there. And I think that's all been thrown into relief a bit for all of us, hasn't it? With mm. suddenly being unallowed to go back to where we might have always thought, oh, well, I can always go back here and we can't. And so I think that had sharpened it all. And, and I do love a bit of nostalgia. I do love that kind of yearning and the, you know, all of those things as a novelist, I find really interesting. And, and of course, the, the balance of the returning home and the pain that actually, you know, and, and actually when, when I read that, that the book opened up for me at that point in terms of what it was about, or certainly what I what I read it as. Now, obviously, I suppose nostalgia might not be how you remember it, but I want to take you back to the Cromwell Road and a bollard. Not actually, uh, as so, long as it's only hypothetically, I'm fine with it. A, if it's literally, I'm not interested. Well, well you no, not <laughs> exactly. No, let's do it metaphorically. But we, you, you wrote about this moment in Say It Again in a nice voice. I mean, a, a book that I know you you've sort of since uncoupled thought, from thought uncoupled <laughs> from but but there is there is a moment where you describe it as breakdown bay where you're in the middle of the night you are heavily pregnant and I just wonder you know sort of so many people may see you as a person that's really got it together that you, they they Bless see you me. as this sort of like mm-hmm. they see you as this sort of great role model I just sort of think you know to compare and contrast today to then in terms of the journey that you've been on since those days yeah it's you know it's been so extraordinary and I think when a book performs in a certain way people are kind of interested to know how it's changed your life that's kind of a question that you get quite a lot and I suppose I've been thinking about it more and more it hasn't changed me and who I am because I it's come so late you know I'm nearly 44 and so I don't think it can shape you in any kind you know a, a success at this point it's too entrenched you know like the, the data's in I've been this person now for a really long time mm. but I think that it just makes there are times when I wish I could go back so this, the moment you're talking about we lived in this tiny I was 25 we lived in this tiny little flat in West Kensington which sounds to any overseas listeners just so much nicer than it actually is I don't know it could have come up it could have come up a normal since we lived there but at the time it was yeah oh it it was on its way I mean the North End Road is probably like New Bond Street now but anyway um it wasn't then and we lived you know we had the neighbors above below side side and back and it was August 2003 and it was the middle of a heat wave and our neighbor downstairs used to smoke weed all day and all night and played tub thumping by Chumbawamba and I just hit my limit with it one morning it was about 5 a.m and I just had to leave the flat and I was so ginormous and it was so hot and you know so pregnant I couldn't get further than the Cromwell Road and I just my husband was we were just walking and I just sat down on the curb which is I mean incredibly dangerous thing to do but it was such a low and I think you know after that came a period um, of sort of wondering what I was going to do with my life now that I'd sort of had a baby on purpose but at a Mm. quite countercultural age like nobody was really telling me what a brilliant idea it was at 25 to kind of halt my career at the times at that stage. But that's all suddenly come around. And I'd already sort of decided three or four years ago that I was really pleased I'd done it that way because now I get this run at another whole career. You know, I'll be an empty nester at sort of 46 or something. But I wish I could have told that 25-year-old who had quite a few years ahead of feeling very uncertain that it would end up this way because those are the sort of moments that you cherish rather than, you know, the, the funny emotions 
moments of seeing it in the hand of this celebrity or, you know, they don't sort of mean as much personally. Mm. I, I mean, so, so much of your writing it, to me is about the exploration of ideas as well as the exploration of characters. And, and, you, and you just forever are throwing in great sort of like, I, I suppose, you know, ideas to, to, to think by, to live by. I mean, what, one, that, one that made me laugh was, was Attack the Day, which I was, I did sort of Google that before before today. And, and, and obviously it's it's a high testosterone US military fitness brand, an outdoor clothing <laughs> brand, a book by an American football coach called Kirby Smart. But for you, it was the words of Archbishop Justin Welby, a, a sort of, you know, a slightly more- the pop culture icon, <laughs> Justin Welby. I know, I know. Tell us about why that matters. I think I think it's just one of those things like like the the nostalgia you know the the peregrine quote that you mentioned those are all the things that you you hear them and you tuck them away whether or not you know you're doing it as a novelist you just these things just leap into your hands and you sort of save them but I think the reason that there's quite a few in the novel like that is because this was very much feeling like my last hurrah I didn't save anything like I didn't keep anything back so it was very much any ideas that are explored in there or any events or bits of conversation or it's all in there because I just was throwing in every ingredient that I had thinking this is my last you know my last chance in the kitchen so I'll just put it all in so that's why there are things like that and I just I think that if someone said to you you need to write a novel about the human condition and it needs to explore marriage and love and sisterhood. You'd be like, well, I, I can't do that in 350 pages. But I think the method that I found really worked for me was to explore those big ideas, but by making them smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller mm. and more specific and to make the moments as tiny as I possibly could. So instead of kind of, you know, Ingrid, the sister who's got all the children, you know, instead of her talking about how she's lost her identity and how, you know, no one express, you know, whatever, confirm validates her she just talks about she just sends Martha a screenshot of her holding a Starbucks cup that someone's just written lady with pram instead of her name you know they always ask your name so to make it as small and specific as that and I suppose you know I guess with the Justin Welby that's a whole philosophy of life boiled down into three words I just think make it smaller and smaller and smaller I couldn't believe he'd said it I mean I sort of imagined it would be some sort of like you know quite a big sporting figure but but there you go I don't know if he would know that do you think he knows that I think he, he invented it. I think he didn't need to. Uh, well, I'm. I'm him. I, I mean, let, let's not disabuse him of it. Now, now you, you've described reading in in the lockdown list that goes with this episode as as a desperately loved pursuit. I just love that phrase, by the way, because of the book that changed your life, Emma by by Jane Austen. And I suppose the love of reading, as you say, has has really helped to decide your career. In terms of what that book meant to you, and and I suppose what the lights that went on in your mind were, how how might Mm. you sort of share that with listeners? Well, I was very late to the party. So when you say that my career was decided by reading, it so nearly wasn't, um, because authors, you always hear them saying, you know, that they read under the covers with a torch um, as children and they were voracious and they'd read all the classics by 10. I remember asking my brother who was working on an English assignment when he was about 14. So I would have been about 12. And I said, what's your assignment on? And he said, it's on this novel. And I asked him the difference between a book and a novel because I had absolutely no clue. So I was a late, I was a late reader um, Mm. for pleasure. And it was only because you know, in all serendipity, it was only because my parents, we moved from New Zealand to Australia when I was in 
what you know upper sixth form I believe you would call it final year of school anyway Mm. and I had no friends all of a sudden like literally not a friend to bless myself with and so then you turn to books for the first time Emma was set reading but I'd always avoided I very cleverly avoided ever doing the set reading but now I thought well I meant it's well I've got nothing else to do and it's not even you know it wasn't a book that shook me to my core the way that Jane Eyre did you know which is was sort of the next thing I read after that when I started to think oh maybe there's something in this maybe people you know they're onto something but it was something that I read and I knew that it was immensely important but it wasn't hard Mm. do you know what I mean it 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 was pleasurable and it was I knew that it was dense and clever and it was cleverer than what I could understand and that you were in such capable hands but it was a pleasure it wasn't that was the first time I'd experienced it not as medicine or not as vegetables Um, and so that was what I loved about it and I think when it gets you whatever you read there's an intensity and there's just like I mean I can remember I mean I I think for me I was about 14 15 and just the sheer excitement of suddenly finding that I was into something and reading yeah. something. Do you that, remember what book it was? Uh, do you know, I'm, I'm very ashamed to tell you, Meg, that it was a Jeffrey Archer novel. It was one of the There's first no things I read about There's no shame in that. It was Cain and Abel. It doesn't matter <laughs> it, though, does and, it? That's well, I remember the, the story of this this sort of like hotel magnet and um, how he sort of made it, lost it. And it was a kind of like, I'd like to say that it went on to sort of like some higher brow sort of prose later on Meg but I mean it's sort of like but but to your point was that it just opened up a world for me that I mm. just didn't know was there and actually I didn't know that my own imagination was capable of of opening yeah exactly exactly and I think when you don't have that as a pillar of your identity early you're not one of those bookish children you almost feel like it's closed to me. I, I can't I can't do it now. It's too late. But I think that's what it can happen to you sort of at any time. Can't Absolutely. And and- I think I'm really lucky in that regard because I, you know, I, not ironically for a writer, but I have a daughter who's 15 and she's dyslexic. And I know that a lot of writers, when that discovery sort of would have got made, would have freaked out about it, mm. um, you know, in terms of like, oh, what does this mean? And it just didn't worry me at all because, you know, I just, it doesn't mean you can't, access literature you know there are so many ways and she's such a devourer of you know audiobooks she's read more than all of us put together and um, that mm. way and I just it never worried me because I think you don't have to read as a child to to access literature later well well I, well, I have a my oldest daughter is exactly that character she's 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 a she reads every night she's 10 and just just you can see that it's going to be a, a lifelong pleasure for her and I'm sure my, my youngest daughter will get the same bug I hope as she goes goes forward now Let's go forward to your, you know, you, you cut your teeth in, in newspapers after, you know, a sort of, well, you could have been a market researcher from what I, from what I, from what I read about diarrhea medication, but, but, but FD.com was where you, where you cut it. Maybe, maybe you could segue between market research to the FT. How I made it from the illustrious world of telemarketing as a student. It wasn't a career job, I'm so pleased to say. Do you know, that was so, it was so funny. We, like, you know, we would do all different market research surveys and one, you know, would be for this soft drink or whatever. But that diarrhea medication, nobody wanted to talk about it at dinner time. So you had to pretend, this is what you're referring to, you had to pretend that you were just ringing up to ask generally about what medications they take. And you'd be like, 
you know, um, Nurofen, um, Panadol, Imodium. Do you ever take Imodium? You know, and you have to really hit Imodium. And then they'd be like, um, no, just kind of like, so no Imodium, because you wanted to drive down that particular. So it's quite a skill, steering a conversation. I learned it early. Um, when I, re- I, when I read that, Meg, I, I can tell you so much. I was crying, laughing, because I could just see the moment of how that worked. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. No, absolutely. Take, abso- take no, us to fine. the FD.com, which that's you described fine, as a, a low-intensity work place oh well we were done by 2 30 or 3 30 it was so much fun it was it was 2000 it was the year 2000 as we all called it and for some reason they had decided that that they would bring in a group of sort of graduates and that our job would be to abstract news stories from all over the world and we had a certain number that we had to do and as soon as they were done we could go home so of course you work like the absolute clappers it was much more like a student environment we were all really young but the best thing about it was that every single day I had to basically deconstruct and reconstruct 30 or 40 news stories and I just learned the formula of it Mm. so at the time I didn't think I was doing anything significant but I can it made me really quick and it made me sort of have that grounding and I pulled in 13,500 pounds a year so you know the low five figures it's pretty impressive well but but, I mean ultimately you were to go on onto the times and I think that's where it took off listen I've read Sorrow and Bliss loved it and you've described it as a post-hope project What, what, what does post hope mean to you and I, and I suppose the thought it might never even see the light of day as a book yeah well it was all it all came out of that failed manuscript that I had spent a year writing and I think the reason that it, it was the stakes felt so high like to trash a novel at 85,000 words it's not the biggest deal in the entire world novelists do it all the time this is what I've lastly discovered I thought I was the first failed writer to ever do it but people do it all the time you know the Anne Patchens of the world do it so it's not you know an enormous private shame but the reason that it, that I've only just come to see since then that it was so devastating to me is because all of that time in my 20s and 30s when I was out of step with my peers in terms of mm. the age of my children compared to the age of theirs and what looks like all the brilliant and exciting things they were doing in their work and the way they their careers were developing that mine wasn't and I chose to be at home and I wanted to be at home but you can't help seeing what your same age friends are doing who have chosen to go a different way but all of that time I would sort of reassure myself with the idea that I will get to come back to it and I will be relatively young and I will get a second career and so suddenly when this manuscript failed that all felt like it had been taken away and the thing that had sort of professional been sustaining me suddenly felt like it wasn't true and so then what did it all mean it was one of those kind of moments right and so that's why it was so devastating but does the does the idea of post hope go beyond you personally I mean do you, do you think that's the zeitgeist in in that you're writing for at the moment or, or, or are so we in a more tricky. hopeful yeah I don't know I think I think I mean I never think on that level really because I don't sort of get up in the morning and think now as a voice of a generation what shall I write about today you know it's only ever sort of what I'm thinking about and what I'm personally doing and where that phrase actually came from was just at my very first interview that I ever gave at the offices of HarperCollins that was sort of the first thing that we did with a lot of independent booksellers before everything suddenly closed down and that's how it sort of just you know came out when I when I expressed it but it was the idea that you know when I thought that I could no longer be a fiction writer because of that failure I didn't want anything else. And, mm. and I, you know, someone said, well, what, what else would you like to do? What, you know, what are your other sort of hopes? I just didn't have any. And, and so that's why I think it's been, 
such an astonishing thing because to to have all of these amazing things with the book happen when you are literally thinking nothing good will ever happen again and I don't even care you know mm. that's kind of the scary part it's not that I'm going to aspire to something else I just think nothing good is going to happen now is but, I suppose, it, but I suppose it's that darkest hours just before the dawn thing I mean so yeah you know, I, I think that that's a really inspiring thing that you say actually because I mean a lot of people sometimes feel like you know they're they're in the dark and then you know but actually things might change and I suppose the idea about things might change is is integral to the story isn't it in terms of you you said that you'd you'd essentially written the mental health novel by accident tell us why because obviously the you're not describing medical symptoms that are 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 sort of genuine mental illnesses in fact you don't even mention an illness by name but but it is the ever-present sort yeah. of part of the journey isn't it in terms yeah. of I suppose that the, the story yeah and the reason that I say that it came around by accident is because when I decided to start writing again and I I use that phrase because I didn't sit down to write another novel and I didn't sit down to redraft you know that that disaster I just sat down to write something that day it wasn't with anybody in mind and so I didn't need an axis around which a story turned and so then after a few months when I did that one almost just I suppose I had enough of the story by then that it, it sort of chose itself that it, because all I knew is that I had Martha and I had Patrick and their marriage was breaking up for a reason that she, she knew there was a reason beyond her. Everybody thought it was her and she knew deep down that it wasn't her, but she couldn't tell you why, because she had mm. a condition that, you know, after searching for a diagnosis for 20 years, she suddenly thinks, well, okay, well, maybe it is just me. And so that was, it was the absence of knowledge that she had. And it was the absence of knowledge that I wanted to carry all the way through the book, which is why none of us get to know what it was either um she is the only one who sort of finds out she and her family yeah so that's Uh, that's how it was an accident but I I suppose you know you we talked about nostalgia but there's also pathos here isn't there in terms of the 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 kind of her journey and how we relate to it because I suppose the extraordinary gift Meg that you've got is the ability to write about something that has got you know a hugely serious sort of you know sort of story to tell about somebody fighting a battle but also just the prose is delightful and so funny and so and and actually how you manage to square that circle behind having things that can make you cry laughing and cry with grief for your your key characters the most flippant question would be how do you do that but you know there what you do mention the f scott fitzgerald quote that what what people are most ashamed of usually makes a good story i mean i mean is that the essential truth that you've managed to sort of take something deeply personal and turn it into that narrative yeah i think when i look at the book now i think the defining characteristic of it or the defining theme and idea is shame because this is a woman who has lived for 20 years not feeling like herself and has acted in a way that everyone has attributed to her personality and her character because in the absence of a medical diagnosis you get a moral diagnosis is how I can see it working Mm. and so there's a 20-year accretion of shame and self-loathing and I think although I haven't felt it that severely I have definitely experienced no one being impressed with me least of all myself do you know like for Mm. a really long time just doing very middling journalism you know not feeling like a brilliant mother and we we sort of build that up and it becomes really intrinsic to who we are and when I mean there's just a little example is that you know when you're doing a copy edit you kind of you sense oh maybe I use the word actually too often and I better do a fine 
mind on that and make sure I take half the actuallys out. And then Thank I goodness I'm the not end, the only one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, even those versus all those and things like that. Um, and then I thought I'll just do, I'll just check sorry and I'll check apologize. And there was one on almost every single page because this is a confessional kind of thing. It's this is her excising of her shame and her confessing of shame. And so I mm. think that's kind of that to me is what the novel is really about. And for whatever reason, you might feel shame. And she also has these amazing moments, though, of course, of exuberance alongside the, the downside. And I mean, I, I love the, the phrase early on that we all know Martha is an amazing listener, especially if she's the one talking the, the speech that's given her about I me. Mean, she's an extraordinary character. But I suppose it opens up your quote for life to us, which is our sense of the highs and lows of, of life and, and your advice to yourself to just exist alongside my failures. Tell, tell us why, why you gave that advice and, and what, what it means to you. Well, I think there's a lot of talk about forgiving yourself, but I find that really difficult when there are things that I don't think I should be forgiven for. So as in the memoir that you talk about, I regret writing it because I hurt people and mm. I gave away information that didn't belong to me and I was flippant and I was callous and I regret that. And if I forgive myself for that, then I feel like that's me saying it was okay. It was fine. Don't worry about it. It's not fine. It will never be fine. And I shouldn't have done it. And I should have been wiser, but I can't let that stop me writing again because that's who I am and it's what I need to do and it's the only thing I know how to do so I just have to work around that failure like scar tissue basically and you know sort of treat it as my good friend Elizabeth Date as a data acquisition exercise but the only way that I could do that was you know when that dialogue or that monologue that starts up in the morning as you sit down to work and you're about sort of hands are poised over the keyboard and your brain was like but you did this but you did mm -hmm. this and you're going to do this again and no, no novel you've written has done well and you know you wrote this story and it was a bit shonky I've had to quiet that voice by just saying be that as it may I'm still going to do it so all of those failures are real they all exist be that as it may I'm just going to write today so in that in with that in mind when you see things like the public debate and you see things like the cancel culture and you see things you know lot, lot, you know when when you are the sort of person that exists through experimentation of ideas things that you regret, you might not self-censor or, or, or sort of, you know, do things as, as, as carefully as, as you might do. How, how do you feel the world is for inventive writers like yourself right now, where, where you've got to be a little bit more self-censoring and perhaps in, in the way mm. that you might approach an idea and how you express it? Do you feel comfortable with it? Well, no, I mean, there's a, there's a huge amount of anxiety that I felt most acutely right before this book was due to come out or really from the time that I realized it was going to come out. And part of the idea for the redaction, I mean, it was chiefly a decision around the kind of the actual creative purpose of not naming that condition combined with, I didn't want it to be the book about this condition, but mm. I was also scared because if I had made it about a woman with schizophrenia or a woman with bipolar, I would suddenly be held up as you're saying schizophrenia is like this. And we, I have schizophrenia and it's not, you know, and I was too scared to be in that position. And I don't think, I mean, I've, I've wondered because I'm not on social media. Can you actually be canceled when you're not on social media? Because effectively, <laughs> what is it? Would they come question. to my house? Like, yeah. would they actually come to my house and but I have a really clear sense of what my job is and it is not 
I don't think it's to advance the conversation. I just think it's to point to things like genuinely mm. to point to things and be like, do you think this is what living with mental illness looks like? Cause I do. And you know, this might be the way I've seen it. And this is what I think. Do you think that? Well, well if you want a personal take, I thought you handled it really elegantly. I thought by not naming it, actually it was an important part of not objectifying Martha and actually just, just understanding this as part of her of her life story in terms of who she was and how how she affected people around her. Thank you. Now, your tip for life, I think, is a cracker. Would you like me to read it out? Because it's it's a sure. it's a full paragraph. So yes. it, it goes. Oh goodness. Yeah, it, it goes. Although it goes against advice that it's important to resolve the small everyday grievances in our nearest relationships by talking about them and expressing our feelings. I honestly think sometimes. Just bottle it up. Tell us about that. Um, and and let's, let's sort of express that as an advice piece as it, as it pertains to you. Yes. Well, do you know, because I'm obviously an oversharer who's therefore, of course, married to someone who bottles things up. At the beginning of our marriage, I'm sure I was like, you need to express how you're feeling. And now I just think with those minor grievances, not the really serious, important stuff, but I think it's really been brought home to me by lockdown and the amount of time we've been spending with each other. Do you really need to know that I find where you put your phone really annoying? Or could I just just sit on that and just move the phone and just move on and not make it a thing, you know? And I just think to have that self-possession and that ability to just, or the the keeping the peace by just letting small things be small things, mm. I just think brings a great deal of, you know, I just think that's so admirable. But, you know, I think I'm going to change my answer as it pertains to writers in particular. And you know what? I wish someone had told me at the beginning of my career and I would have, I would have held fastest and no one's ever told me it. And it is the most truthful piece of writing advice that I could ever give anyone. Don't wear a shirt that you like for your headshots because you can't wear it again. Because if it's a distinctive item of clothing, they'll be like, that's your headshot shirt. So whatever you wear for your headshot, you are effectively binning it. So don't wear something that you like that's distinctive. That's well, my writing advice for life. I, I think that, well, I think it's good to have something that has got the kind of romance of, you know, so we've said some of these quotes have, have had sort of great, great, um, I suppose, um, ideas behind but I think that's a practical one there Meg it's as well which is, I think it, and I think it's good I think it's good to have some practical advice in a show like this but think of the money I could have saved if I'd known not to wear some really key high concept fashion my headshots well well that that I'm sure listeners will pick up but let, let, let's finish off on these because you know a lot of your um your writing has got these, these great sort of wistful sort of you know sort of phrases that you picked up along the way and of course you know I think this this idea of of that journey of life for you we talked about the ralph allison quote the end is in the beginning and lies far ahead and of course you you, you do um raise one I, I i just wrote this one here and so our story ends just when everything is at its best this idea about the journey of life and what you take out of it and a final thought for listeners in terms of I suppose living the good life because that I suppose is ultimately what your characters want it's 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 things that I, I guess you explore through your writing what's the advice you'd leave with listeners in terms of how to get it right the lesson that I had to learn at 40 that I should have learned at 20 was that no one was going to help me And it sounds really bleak, but it's actually very empowering because if you understand that no one cares 
about your career progression or, you know, your dreams and your hopes that they are yours alone. And if you want them, you literally just have to go out and fetch them. I read the most beautiful, I was reminded the other day of of Rabbit in Winnie the Pooh, that he's not the kind of, you know, he says he's not the kind of person who just waits to let things come to him the way Winnie the Pooh does. He goes out and fetches them. And I think that's what I've come to see. You just have to go out and fetch it. And that's kind of what I did. And when someone said to me the other day, what are you the proudest of? about Sarah and Bliss and you know I suppose that meaning who might have read it and and how it's performed the day that I dragged that failed manuscript into the bin on my you know the, the trash on my computer I just put my head on the desk I rested my forehead kind of on my arms on the desk and cried but at some point I lifted it back up again kind of figuratively and literally obviously I said still be there right now but that's the moment that I'm proudest of because I just raised my head up again and started over and I went and fetched it <laughs> You know, so I think that's that's probably I think how to live the life that you really want. Well, I have to say, on behalf of your readers, thank goodness you did take it out of the trash because I think it's one of the most wonderful reads. And congratulations on writing something that has real meaning and real impact. Meg Mason, thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 